Good morning. Boy, it's good to see you all this morning. It's a beautiful fall weekend. Um, this morning, this, it's amazing how God places you in, in the middle of a text, and then you have to share it on Sunday morning. It's really cool how the Holy Spirit works. Um, this morning, I'm going to say we live in a world of mysteries, and um, some of them are solved, and some of them are unsolved, but what's the anatomy of a mystery? What, what makes a mystery a mystery? It's, it's something that's hard to explain or hard to understand. Now, as a child, I loved mysteries. And as a almost 60-year-old feller, I love mysteries today. Uh, when I was a little kid, I used to be enamored with a ship that was built that was said that it would be unsinkable. So how could a ship that was unsinkable ever sink? Well, that's the Titanic. We've all probably seen the 1996 movie, The Titanic, that portrays what happened that night. But I ran across an article. Um, I, I'm a real Titanic buff. I have to talk to Julie. I've been to the Titanic exhibit in Chicago. I'm kind of stupid about it, but I love it, anything to do with that. But I read an article that says uh, that it could have been avoided if they saw that iceberg. Well, the truth is that the iceberg uh, may have been avoided with one thing, and that one thing was a pair of binoculars. Now, you see in the movie where they get in the crow's nest and they have a pair of binoculars, but there was a fellow that came forth. He was the second officer named David Blair that was not able, at the last minute, couldn't sail on that ship. And he, in his pocket, he held a key that unlocked the crow's nest, which held the binoculars. So whether that's true or not, it may explain the mystery of why they didn't see that. If you fly, there's some of you that like to fly, some of you don't like to fly, but uh, about six years ago, there was a flight uh, from, it actually was from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. It was flight MH370. That flight took off, and it had um, many people on it, and it was crossing the Indian Ocean when it completely vanished off the radar. No, never, no one saw a, tra a trace of it. Now, since then, they have found some debris, but they've never found uh, survivors. That's a big mystery there. You know, mystery is one of the biggest uh, staples of TV. We've got CSI, not just one, three of them. We have Miami, Las Vegas, and... New York. But there's one mystery that may perplex you more than any. I know at our house it has. We've moved probably 16 times in 40 years or more, and that mystery follows us everywhere we go. It's a mystery that I'm a little scared to share this morning, but it's the mystery of why two socks go in the dryer <laughs> and one sock comes out. Does that mystery happen at your house? I mean, it's okay for me now. Most of you here are family, and you know I have one leg. The one sock works for me now. I only need one sock, but while Jake's doing that, let's bow for a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for your written word, Father, that it's living and breathing. And this morning, as we talk about the mystery revealed, Lord, I just pray that uh, you'll give me clarity to be able to speak what you want me to speak this morning and open our ears and hearts to hear from you this morning. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The church is the single greatest thing in the world. It's so great that God sent his son, Jesus, who willingly died for it. It's so great that multitudes have literally given their lives through the years um, for the church. 
It's so great that to this day, sacrifices are made worldwide in the mission field for its sake. And when we properly understand Ephesians chapter 3, it's no mystery why they've done it. In fact, for the Christian, in this third chapter of Ephesians, Paul continues to write passionately about the greatest thing in the world. He's told us that the church is the kingdom which Christians are the subjects, a family in which Christians are siblings, and a temple which those who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are stones. That will pick up a little bit what Jake uh, will recap on what he preached on. Um, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 reads, So, then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Well, the mystery is revealed. Now, remember that chapter 3 is a continuation of a long thought of which Paul started in chapter 1, uh, verse 22, and it goes all the way to chapter 3, verse 13. So let's get to the flow in 3, and let's see what we've learned up to this point. In Ephesians 1, verses 22 through 23, Paul says that Christ was the head of the body, and he identifies that as the church. In chapter 2, he delineates three vast groups of people. We had the sinful mankind, Number two, Israel, God's special chosen people, uh, and a totally new entity, which is the church, which came into existence through the work of Jesus Christ. This new entity, the church, made up of both Jews and Gentiles, is referred to Paul as one new man in verse 15. That is a new humanity, a new spiritual people of God. With that background in mind, we're going to look even a little deeper into three now. Paul begins a chapter with these words in verse 1, and thank you, Tyler, for reading this morning. God bless you. Um, in verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Verse 2, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. Paul says in verse 1 that he was a prisoner of Jesus Christ for the Gentiles' sake. Paul was writing to the Ephesian Christians for the com- from the confinement of a Roman prison. So, But rather than identifying himself as a Roman prisoner, I think it's interesting to note he looks beyond the earthly power and identifies himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He belongs to Christ and is imprisoned for the cause of Christ. His imprisonment is because of his service to Christ and is part of this, his service to Christ. That's the way he looks at it. Furthermore, Paul identifies himself as a prisoner of Christ on behalf of who? The Gentiles. Not the Jews, but the Gentiles. He's been imprisoned precisely because of the gospel to the Gentiles. And this is an ordeal Paul willingly accepts for the sake of Christ and the church. In verse 2, he said he'd been given a special administration. Well, what is administration? Well, it means a stewardship or a responsibility of God's grace on behalf of the Gentiles. That is, he had a special responsibility for them, a special ministry. 
When describing his conversion to King Agrippa in Acts 26, he talks about the conversion he had on the Damascus Road. God called him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles at that time. So it's no wonder that in various places in the New Testament, that's what he refers himself as, as a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, a teacher of the Gentiles to the Galatians. And then in verse 3, he tells us that he received a special revelation about a special mystery. Now, understand that mysterion that I mentioned a little bit early. The Greek word translated here is, means something different than what we think about in, in modern time. It's, um, it has more of a um, kind of a whodunit um, meaning in our society today. But the Greek word in the New Testament meant a previously truth, not noble by human means, was revealed by God in his special timing. Well, what is that mystery? We want to know what the mystery is this morning. It was a mystery that's formerly hidden but now revealed. He says in verses 4 through 6, in reading this, then you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel of the Gentiles, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of the body, and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Paul says in verses 4 through 5, this mystery was not made known to anyone until the New Testament apostles and prophets. That's pretty heavy duty to me as I was studying this week. So it was not a true mysterion or mystery in the New Testament sense, something not previously known, noble only by revelation. In Paul 6, Paul says that the new revelation was the, that the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers would be incorporated together into one spiritual entity, the church of Christ. This is essentially what Paul had taught in chapter 2, but Paul uses three um, terms to describe a vital unity between Jewish and Gentile believers, which we're going to talk about. First, he says, they become fellow heirs of God's inheritance. The idea is that God doesn't divide some of his inheritance with Gentile believers and some of it with Jewish believers. The ethnic divide is eliminated. All equally share in Christ's inheritance. It's, for example, if, if you die and you left your inheritance to your children, the whole inheritance is theirs together. Not one getting the upstairs, one getting the basement, when getting the main floor and the baby getting the front porch. The point is that both Jews and Gentiles are united and share all the blessings that come from Christ equally. Second, he says, Gentile believers are members of the same body as the Jews. They're not two separate groups, Jewish believers and Gentile believers, and there's only one body, the body of Christ, with Christ as the head. Third, he says, Gentiles partake of the same promise given to the Jews, the same promise. The promise referred, referred to here is and was the Holy Spirit. And the fact is that just as Jewish believers were baptized with the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, so were Gentile believers as well. Paul's point is, it's, 
It's amazing. Previously uh, unrevealed truth of God is that all believers together make up Christ's body, regardless of their race, their um, uh, ethnicity, um, economic um, location. They're all one in Christ. It's for everybody. It's for everybody. It's for us as Gentiles and Jews there's room at the cross for all who will just bow down on their knees and, and ask Christ and trust him to be their savior. It was never, ever God's intention that the Jews see themselves as just the special ones in excluding all others. It was always his purpose to reach out to the whole world and embrace it with the gospel message. Secondly, we see that this ministry is received in verses 7 through 12. Seven reads, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Paul says here he was given a ministry. He's a minister, but that is not a, it's a title of service. I, uh, interesting enough, I was talking before church. I know at our house when the minister came over when I was a kid, it was a big deal. Matter of fact, I even commented to Jake this morning that we had to call the minister Reverend. It was Reverend Hayes, and we didn't eat on uh, the regular plates. We ate on the ones that were in the china cabinet. Um, we didn't eat uh, macaroni and cheese. We had, um, you know, we had a meat and a potato and a vegetable. I mean, it was it was top dog. You know, we drank water out of glasses, and we had, you know, three pieces of silver on one side. It was, and we had to be on our best behavior. But you know what Paul's talking about here, being a minister, it's not elevating himself. He's talking about himself as being a minister, a servant, um, a servant to others. Um, matter of fact, in old Greek literature, um, the, the minister, diakonos, Greek meaning is a table waiter who is always at the bidding of his customers. So that's a little bit different than what I thought in my head. At the beginning of verse 8, he says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Well, Paul invents, invents a whole new word here when he uses the least of all the saints, which linguistically it's impossible, but it roughly translates into the leastest of the saints. And this is Swagman, I know that English, that's probably not a word we use often, leastest. But um, it's the least of the least. And knowing what a spiritual giant Paul was, it's easy to think that he was being false, falsely modest there. But Paul really did feel this way. He never forgot the damage he caused to the church when he was killing Christians before he came to know Christ. In Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 10, he said, For I'm the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So Paul was not being disingenuous. He forever marveled that someone so religiously misguided as he was and selfishly ambitious as he had been um, that, um, that Christ 
could meet him and forgive him of all his sins and wrongdoings. I think that's amazing. And, you know, and to top that off, Christ made Paul, the Jew of Jews, the uh, deliverer of the gospel message to the Gentiles. Now, in God's ways, he has a way of doing things. I would have sent a Jew to the Jews and a Gentile to the Gentiles. But God had other plans for Paul. What a marvelous reminder of God's wonderful grace. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about that, that we can receive the full pardon of our sins by trusting in Christ Jesus. And like Paul, God will bless us beyond anything and everything we would ever deserve, despite our past sins. Our past becomes the past. The only reason we should look at it is to testify of where God's brought us from. At the end of verse 8, Paul says his ministry was targeted in three directions. First, in the earlier part of um, 8, he says that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And this, my friends, is what people need to hear first and foremost. And this is what melted my chubby little heart this week, is the unsearchable riches of Christ. When we know what those are, they're amazing, and they only come from Christ. And it's something you can't uh, manufacture. Those riches are amazing. When sharing Christ with your friends and neighbors, don't waste your time talking about issues or whether this or this, that activity is wrong. It's useless. No, what the lost need to hear is that there's unsearchable riches in Christ. We live in an ugly world right now. It's an ugly, ugly world. Um, I don't have to tell you. I don't have to give you examples of how dark it is right now. And people need to hear about Christ and the blessings in him. And Paul's only message to the lost, he said in 1 Corinthians 1.23, that we preach Christ crucified. And in chapter 2, verse 2, describing his message when he first came to Corinth, he said, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. The Greek phrase translated, unsearchable riches, it's interesting. It literally means riches that cannot be tracked. In other words, they're so vast, they're so infinite, and that they cannot be valued, tracked, or accounted for. Pastor and author Kent Hughes sums it up this way in a book he wrote, The Mystery of the Body of Christ. I love this. Quote, what are the implications of this? Primarily that Christ always enriches life. Christ never subtracts from it. Primarily, Christ never subtracts from life. He always enriches it with untrackable riches. And I want to testify that to that this morning. I want to testify to that this morning. Those riches that he blesses us with allow us to look at the day differently. You can wake up at the day and look at it as I'm going to be, you know, this is a bad day. I, you know. But honestly, you all know I work with Jake, and I'm on the phone with folks a lot through the week. People coming to call in their bills. And this week, God gave me an opportunity just through a conversation, he, he was asking questions about me, and I told him about having lost a leg and some fingers, and he said, I would have never believed that out of you. He says, you're so happy. Well, you know what? I got to talk about the unsearchable riches of Christ and how he had been able to bless me 
and how I'd go through it all over again to experience Jesus as I have and to see how much joy. That's the unsearchable riches that come from above. And he wept. The phone was completely quiet for what seemed a minute or so, and I could hear him weeping. I said, it's okay. It's okay. So people need to hear that because they're looking for that. They're looking for that. Paul felt it was his ministry to enlighten everyone of the great mystery of joining the Gentiles in the church to create the body of Christ. This seems maybe kind of ho-hum to us today, but it was was earth-shaking in Paul's day, let me tell you. A good portion of the book of Acts is taken up with the church grappling with the uh, integration of the Gentiles in the church, and several major portions of Paul's writings and letters deal with it. Gentiles were considered, and you probably may or may not know this, they were unclean, um, sinful, and they were called dogs. You might say that Paul was successful in getting this message out. For In writing about these things, he informed the whole world, in essence. But in fact, the idea of this kind of fellowship Paul is talking about has never really been fully realized as a church in a, in a whole, in maybe pockets. We're still separated by racial, ethnic lines, uh, socioeconomic boundaries, and by nationalism. The major distinguishing mark of the early church was what? It was their intense love for one another. In fact, there was a saying throughout the Roman Empire, behold how they, the Christians, love one another. Maybe here at St. Louis Crossing, we can't change the world. Maybe we can't change the face of Christianity. But we can affect our church, and we can affect our community. We can affect our workplaces, I'm telling you. May we be infused with Christ's love and his spirit to be that to the lost and dying world. The third direction of Paul's ministry may surprise you if you look at verses 10 through 13. It reads, To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in the heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. According to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul says that the mystery of fellowship of Gentiles and Jews in one body is being watched and wondered by heavenly powers. And you know what that heavenly powers is? I read a lot on it this week. It's angels. Angels are not all-knowing, and even they are not privy to this mystery. Several places in Scripture teach that the angels do not know God's complete plan for history and redemption. And they observe us to learn about that, and they do that. Paul says they see the manifold wisdom of God, the Greek word, Translated manifold here means many-colored, many-faceted, which was used in the Old Testament to describe, have you ever heard of Joseph's coat of many colors? Well, there's a commentator that said the multicolored fellowship of the church, the variegated third race of Jews and Gentiles, shows the many-shaded wisdom of God. As the angels watch, they must marvel at 
God's wisdom. Like everything so far in Ephesians, we're getting, we're getting close to uh, finished here. God never intends his book to become a textbook or of just dry facts just to know them. He wants truth to impact our lives, the way we live it, to affect our behavior, to change us, transform us. What are some practical applications we can take away from this message today? Well, first of all, just as Paul had a ministry of sharing the mystery of Christ, we too have that same opportunity, that same ministry for us. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.18 that God has given to all believers the ministry of reconciliation. Well, this is the ministry of sharing with our friends, neighbors, co-workers, and loved ones uh, that though everyone is a sinner before God, facing his judgment, they can be reconciled to God through Jesus' death on the cross for their sins. You don't have to be a pastor to be in the ministry. All believers had the ministry of reconciliation. Are you ministering um, by inviting people to church? Talking to people about their eternal destiny? Sharing with them the unsearchable riches of Christ that you've experienced? Maybe it's because you don't feel adequate enough. Maybe you don't feel, uh, maybe someone else is going to do it. But you know what? Your message may be the message that they need to hear that could change their destiny for eternity. Now, I'm going to share a little story here that several people sitting here have heard. It will give you cold chills. Bill Fay, this is in 2001, Bill Fay, an evangelist who was a guest speaker at the Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington, on Sunday, September 9th, returned to his home Monday, September 10th. On his American airline flight, he saw a flight attendant breaking up some ice with a wine bottle, and he got up from his seat and asked her if there was another way she could do that. It would be more safely. He said uh, he was afraid that she'd hurt herself, so he thought he'd say something. She, well, she was moved that he would be so concerned. He then gave her a gospel track to read when she had had a spare moment. A short time later, she found Bill and told told him that this was the sixth gospel track she'd ever received from someone. What does God want from me, she asked. Bill responded, your life. A few min minutes later, he was praying with her to accept Jesus Christ as her personal Savior. After September 11th's attack on World Trade Towers, Bill looked up the names on those American Flight 11, the first plane that crashed into the World Trade Center. That stewardess's name was on that list. Lastly, this morning, I want to ask you, have you discovered the unsearchable riches of Christ? <clears throat> I didn't ask if you've been religious or attended church or given to the needy. What I know is, I want to know is, are you saved? Have you experienced complete forgiveness by putting your faith into Christ alone as your only hope of salvation? If not, you're missing out on the most wonderful blessing of all. And as Kent Hughes said, Christ never subtracts from our life. He won't do that. He always enriches it with untrackable riches. 
If you've never come to a place where you realized you need Christ's forgiveness for eternal life, I invite you this morning to just pray a simple prayer. It is that simple. Just pray that, uh, just acknowledge that he died on a cross for you. You're a sinner and you need salvation that only comes from him. Jesus says in John 6, 47, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath eternal life. Will you claim that verse today and experience the intractable, inexhaustible riches of Christ? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the message today. And I think, I'm thankful that uh, we do, that you did reveal the mystery, Father. And Lord, that you that you died for us, that we can have eternal life, that the, the penalty of sin and the wrath is removed because you sent Jesus to die for each person in this room. Lord, may we just uh, embrace that. Lord, may we accept it. And may you just reveal yourself in a way that will just propel us into this lost and dying world to live a life that would be pleasing to you and draw others to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, David. Romans eight thirty nine tells.